This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Hang your cloak in a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. You're among friends. Medical investigative reporter, a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist, John Rappaport from NoMoreFakeNews.com is standing by to discuss the Zika virus, and he comes armed with some information I think is going to knock your socks off. Uh, while we wait for uh, John, uh, get on up to the landing page, strangeplanet.ca, and there you can check out the website for this program. Just go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show, and there you'll, you'll find a slide carousel up at the top, which features a collection of tantalizing tidbits and meaty stories, uh, including one from the folks at 21stCenturyWire.com about a recently uncovered practice by the CIA called eyewashing. Now, eyewashing involves sending accurate information only to a very small number of people and then disinformation to all other employees. Uh, And what it suggests is a lot of things that are dismissed in the mainstream media as ridiculous conspiracy theory may, in fact, uh, be a lot closer to the truth than we can imagine. Uh, A few political junkies, a piece from the New American on the ever-tightening noose around presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton. Clinton has spent the last several months attempting to dodge the fallout from the scandal surrounding her use of a private, unsecured email server during the six years she spent as Secretary of State. And the report lays out the case for why the FBI really has no choice uh, but to call for an indictment. Please visit the live events page at strangeplanet.ca uh, and there you'll find details for my next live event, Sunday, April the 17th, The Bilderbergs, featuring an invest, uh, featuring investigative journalist Daniel Estelin, the best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs, and he'll be presenting his brand-new documentary, Bilderberg the Movie. He'll also deliver a 90-minute lecture on the subject, take Q&A, And that'll all be followed by a book signing and meet and greet. That's The Bilderbergs, Sunday, April 17th at the U of T. Tickets available online at strangeplanet.ca, the live events page. 
or in store or by phone at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West. Uh, to order, call 416-916-1696 or through their website, conspiracyculture.com. Uh, the recent outbreak of Zika, the mosquito-borne virus, has quickly gained Ebola-level notoriety. The World Health Organization claims the virus may well be responsible for a birth defect called microcephaly, where children are born with abnormally small heads and brain impairment. As a result, many North Americans are changing their travel plans and avoiding South and Central America and the Caribbean. Worse, however, women in Brazil uh, and elsewhere are being advised not to get pregnant for the next several years. What on earth? is going on, and is this hysteria justified? Joan Rappaport has worked as a freelance investigative reporter for nearly four decades. He's the author of three explosive collections, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside the Matrix. He's written articles on politics, health, media, culture, and art for LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS, Health Watch, and other newspapers and magazines in the United States and Europe. In 1982, the L.A. Weekly submitted his name for a Pulitzer Prize for his interview with the president of El Salvador University, where the military had taken over the campus. In 1996, John started the great boycott against eight corporate chemical giants, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Bayer, uh, and others, Imperial Chemical Industries, uh, and the boycott continues to operate today. John Rappaport is the man behind nomorefakenews.com. It's a terrific website, and he's a good friend of the radio program and has appeared on numerous episodes of the Conspiracy Television program. John, how are you? Great. Good to be here with you, Richard. Great to have you with us. All right. Uh, let's sort of get the official version of, of things, and then we'll find out uh, regarding the Zika virus and then find out where uh, you sort of differ. Uh how long has the Zika virus been around? This is not something new. We're not hearing about it. I mean, many people may be hearing about it for the first time, but it's, it's been out there. Reports have been out there before, correct? Well, not many reports, but it was first uh, discovered in 1947, 48. So it's been around, you know, uh, as far as human understanding is concerned uh, for that period of time. And, of course, it could have existed for several hundred thousand years or more, who knows. And the, the latest reports out of Brazil, uh, first of all, where is the, the supposed outbreak centered? And give us the particulars of, of uh, when it was discovered, this outbreak. Okay, well, we're going back, uh, you know, basically a month or two when the story exploded. Uh, but in the northeastern sector of Brazil is supposedly the center of this, quote, outbreak. And um, in the last month or two, we've received reports that over 4,000 cases have suddenly been appearing in Brazil of babies born with smaller heads and brain damage. And this condition is called microcephaly. And uh, the official story is that this uh, condition is being caused tied to the Zika virus itself. Uh, and, and the Zika virus is, is spread to people through mosquito bites. 
Correct. But yeah. but the the symptoms are are usually mild, are they not? Well, yeah. Now, I mean, we're crossing the line between the official account right. and, and the truth. Uh, yes. Since 1947, nobody's really paid that much attention to this virus because uh, the symptoms are very mild. The uh, disease, if you even want to call it that, the illness is short, goes away by itself. And now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's being blamed for this horrendous birth defect. Yeah, tell me about this uh, microcephaly, uh, the, the symptoms. Babies are born with, with smaller, smaller heads, smaller brains? Yes, the smaller heads, brain impairment, brain damage, nervous system impairment, etc., etc. And so it's a, uh, you know, a tragic condition. But... I mean, it's well known. This is not the first time, of course, that anybody's heard of this. For example, in the United States, there are many different estimates of how many cases of this occur a year. And uh, the figures go all the way down from, you know, say, 1,000 all the way up to 25,000 cases a year in the U.S. Of this particular birth defect you're talking about? Yes, microcephaly. But... And this, so, you know, this has been around. I mean, it's not as if this is popping up for the first time. The thing is, it's very clear in the literature that any insult to the developing fetal brain can cause this condition. Mother falls down a flight of stairs. Uh, Mother suffers a blow to the stomach, ingests a toxic pesticide, toxic medical drug, uh, you know, anything that you can imagine practically of a severe impact could cause and does cause microcephaly in babies. Is it also this, this um, uh, defect, is it also known as a, a Guillain-Barre disease? No, that's is, something That's something entirely. different? Are there, oh, okay. And now that is also being tied to the Zika virus by the official story. Guillain-Barre, uh, you know... You're talking about people falling into a kind of paralyzed state, even perhaps a coma, death. The most famous case was in 1976 uh, with the swine flu vaccine that actually caused cases of Guillain-Barre. So if we've had Zika cases, Zika virus cases in, in Africa, the Americas, Asia, the Pacific... Uh, now, you know, we're talking about Brazil here. Since at least the 1940s, why all of a sudden are they making this link to this microcephaly? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and now I'll give you uh, a bit of the, the truth here. Because the latest reports out of Brazil indicate that the researchers have gone and back in and looked at their own work. In other words, they had these reports of 4,180 cases in Brazil from all over the country of microcephaly. These were suspected cases, so now they're taking a good look. So what do they find? Only 270 confirmed cases of microcephaly. And of those 270, um, let me give you a further update, which I have here, just 
now. 404 cases of microcephaly, not 4,180. 404 confirmed cases of microcephaly, and in those, only 17 with any relationship established to the Zika virus. And that's been confirmed. The update, the confirmation, is that from the World Health Organization, or...? That's from the Brazilian Health Authority. Okay. But that is confirmed by many other media sources going back to Brazil. Uh, The World Health Organization doesn't want to talk about the exact numbers if they can help it. They gloss over the whole thing by saying, yes, uh, we can't demonstrate that the Zika virus causes microcephaly, but it's highly suspected that that is the case, and on that basis, we are acting. All right. And where are these four, are these 400 cases um, of confirmed microcephaly? Do, do, do the, does the location correspond with the, the location of the, of the Zika virus outbreak? Or, I mean... <laughs> well, no. I mean, there's no word on that because, you see, there is no particular area of Brazil where you can say this is the Zika virus outbreak. I mean, they've only confirmed, as I said, 17 cases of microcephaly where they even believe that the Zika virus was involved. Wow, it really seems like they're trying hard to shoehorn this thing, doesn't it? Well, sure. I mean, they're blowing this up into a worldwide hysteria about yet another global pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what the audience has to understand, because there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about viruses. Look, the Zika virus has been around, as far as we know, I mean, since 1947, obviously much longer than that. So what does that mean? Well, it's traveled around the world, you know, probably thousands of times. You can find it everywhere. In fact, you can go back in India and see, you know, there's a long-standing. Uh, condition they call Zika fever, which has existed in India for a long time, but it's never been considered to be serious. So therefore, now the World Health Organization can go around and say, well, more people than we thought of are, quote, infected by the Zika virus. Uh, We have cases in Colombia, and we have cases in Brazil, and we have cases in Africa, and this and that, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? What does that actually mean? It simply means that the virus has always been there, and it's not doing anything. It hasn't been doing anything. But now, you see, they're jacking up the hysteria because they've connected uh, in public relations, propaganda terms. They've connected this virus to microcephaly. So now whenever they say Zika, people imagine photographs of babies with small heads brain defects and so forth and so on but there is no connection that has been uh, demonstrated or proven and since the Zika virus has been on the planet for God knows how long so what? So what if there are 12 cases of people who quote test positive tomorrow in Toronto or Vancouver or New York or Atlanta the virus has been there for nobody knows how long and it hasn't done anything. It just hangs around. All right, we'll take a time out. Uh, John Rappaport is with us. He's uh, a medical investigative reporter 
And we are talking about the Zika virus right here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Rappaport stays with us. No more fake news.com. Uh, there you can follow his, um, his numerous uh, bl- blogs and uh, dispatches regarding the Zika virus. Uh, and as you say, John, this has really been stirred up into a frenzy by uh, the World Health Organization and others. Uh, before we proceed, uh, let uh, people know how they can get copies of The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside the Matrix. Okay, well, these are not books. They're very large collections of text and audio and so forth. And by going to nomorefakenews.com, they'll see the graphics there for each uh, collection. They just click on and read a description and... They can order if they want to. These are CD-ROMs, essentially. Well, essentially, uh, we uh, submit them digitally, so there's no no hard copy. They just order, and they get all the files. Got it. Okay. So uh, back to the Zika virus. And uh, it seems, as we mentioned earlier, like they're really trying to, to make a – well, it's a tenuous link, you're saying, between the Zika virus, which has been around since the 1940s. All of a sudden now they're trying to link it, they, the World Health Organization, other uh, health organizations, trying to link it uh, to these uh, cases of microcephaly. And as you say, there are only 400, not 4,000, 400 confirmed um, cases of microcephaly uh, in, in Brazil. Now, how unusual uh, would the, are, are 400 cases in a country the size of Brazil? What would, what, I mean, what's the baseline here? How, how common or uncommon is microcephaly? It's not unusual at all. 200 million people in Brazil. And as I said, the lowest estimate that you'll ever find for microcephaly in the United States every year is about 800. The highest is 25,000. And the reason that there's this huge difference is because there are different definitions, technical definitions of microcephaly. So in a country of, you know, 200 million people, Brazil, to see 404 cases, not unusual, not unusual at all. It's not uh, something that, you know, would ordinarily be alarming. And if that's all they had from the beginning, and if they haven't, if they hadn't trumpeted this huge number of 4,100 cases, there would have been no hysteria to begin with. So you, you believe that they are deliberately inflating these numbers, and as you say, the World Health Organization, they don't want to talk details. They want everyone to continue to believe it's more like 4,000 confirmed cases. Is that the idea? Yes, and they also, World Health Organization especially wants everybody to believe that the Zika virus is the cause. Is it okay? Now, before we get into what other causes there may be, is it possible? Is anyone suggesting that perhaps the Zika virus has mutated? Is it one of those viruses that that uh, like the flu, for example, that mutates? Is it possible it mutated uh, and then could cause something like a microcephaly? Anything is possible. Okay, I could say that the uh, you know regular seasonal flu virus is suddenly causing people to 
you know, be born with uh, some other kind of defect. Sure, I could say that, but nobody has shown it to be the case yet. And in fact, uh, researchers interviewed in Brazil say they don't know when that question is asked. So, again, anything is possible, but you don't say this virus is causing this birth defect just by saying it. You're supposed to know before you say it. You're supposed to know something, and they don't. Yeah, it, as, as we've discussed, this is a, uh, it seems to be a tenuous link at best, uh, anecdotal, uh, which is <laughs> contrary to, you know, the, um, uh, the experimental method and so forth. Okay, so uh, what other possible explanations could there be for this recent, if I can use the term, outbreak, but that's, that's um, not, uh, you know, a good term. We're not talking about an outbreak. But what, what, could, uh, what also could cause uh, these recent cases of microcephaly in Brazil? I'm glad you uh, modified that, you see, because everybody... There's a reflex action there to say, you know, large outbreak of microcephaly when that has not yet been confirmed at all, right. in truth. But okay, atrazine, a pesticide used in Brazil, connection to microcephaly on large corporate farms. Roundup in one study was linked to microcephaly, very controversial study. Brazil is the largest user of pesticides in the world, of any country. And they use pesticides that have been banned in 22 other countries because they're too poisonous. So, you know, covert op here? Yes. Who has to be protected? The big agri-biotech corporations growing GMO food in Brazil huge corporate farms spraying people everywhere with pesticides for a very long time, highly toxic. Yes, absolutely. That is one of the things that is lurking behind this nonsensical science that we've just discussed. John Rappaport is with us, the man behind No More Fake News, investigative medical health reporter for four decades and the author of three explosive uh, collections available through his website, The Matrix Revealed, Exit from the Matrix, and Power Outside uh, the Matrix. Uh, if uh, Roundup, Ready Crops, if there's a link there uh, to microcephaly, the, the pesticides uh, that, that are being used, wouldn't then we expect uh, cases of microcephaly to be far, far higher, or is it a, is it a question of, uh, you know, degrees of sensitivity? I mean, obviously... You know, people have di different uh, differing sensitivities to chemicals. Yes. You would expect there to be all manner of horrendous conditions caused by these pesticide poisons. In other words, it wouldn't be you saying, oh, well, wherever these pesticides are used, microcephaly just skyrockets. Well, that's one of the things it can do. But it can cause all other kinds of nervous system disorders, partial paralysis, neurological conditions. I mean, the poison, you know, does many things to many different people. And is there a, um, is there a particular, is there, I mean, is there a, a plant, a, 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 um, like a DuPont or a, a chemical plant 
uh, right there in the middle of uh, Brazil that's that's producing a lot of these of these chemicals? And is it, or is it the crops people are ingesting, or is it people downwind from a plant? How is how are they ingesting these pesticides primarily? In the northeastern sector of Brazil, uh, in the area that we're talking about, I just got a report from there that indeed uh, Monsanto has a facility there. And they are doing apparently experimental work on uh, genes vis-a-vis food crops. Well, I know because I wrote extensively about the same kind of setup in Hawaii some months ago now, that wherever Monsanto does experiments with genes, they're going to be doing experiments with pesticides. And as far as which ones, these are considered to be proprietary corporate secrets, right? Mm. So we don't know. Just as on the island of Kauai, although I have a list, uh, which I published a link to some time back, of many, many different pesticide sprayings of many different compounds, we don't know all the compounds that are being used. So that's one thing. Then we have agricultural workers close to pesticides in the fields, opening up containers and so on and so forth, using the pesticides to spray. We have people in extreme poverty-stricken areas where the pesticides get into the soil and the water and so on, so they're affected as well. So, you know, you've got, and that doesn't even begin to talk about people who eat the food, uh, which is everywhere, that have been sprayed with these. So we're talking about, uh, you know, a very wide spectrum here. Uh, you would expect then to find uh, these insecticides uh, in, in mother's breast milk and, and these sorts of things. Is, is, does that bear sure. out with the research in places like Brazil? Well, I don't know about specific studies having to do with breast milk, but it stands to reason that if you are, say, in an area of huge corporate agriculture and the pesticides are everywhere, they're going to get into people's bodies, women's bodies. And uh, some of these toxics can be transferred through breast milk, but also during fetal development. That's, you know, also obvious. You know, it's the fetus is in the mother and the mother has poison in her body. So it's an easy transference. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, they're, they're, they're warning women uh, in Brazil not to get pregnant for the next several years. Uh, I mean, is, is that part of the agenda here, perhaps? Yes. It's not just Brazil. 22 other countries are involved here with different levels of warnings and travel advisories for women. Don't go to these countries because it might be a problem. And I recently wrote an article, and this is, the I mean, you'll, you'll see, Abortions at Sea. In Central America and South America, there are many countries that either have outright bans on an abortion or only you can get an abortion only in a very restricted cases. So there's a group that's offering women in early pregnancy outside the three-mile limit in international waters. You go out in a boat, you're given a drug, 
And when you come back, your baby is gone and will never be born. And this is based on no science. It's based on total hysteria, propaganda, and women are taking advantage of this. Uh, in other words, it's the uh, uh, preemptive, better safe than sorry. Uh, exactly. Right. Exactly. And do we have a handle on how many, uh, how many of these abortions are happening? I have no idea, but it's just begun. I'm assuming it's going to escalate because the fear is being driven home all over Central and South America, as well as around the world. But if you're a woman in, say, a Central American country, and you see the reports and you hear all the reports, and you don't understand the cover stories and the lies and the lack of science, etc., etc., then you're subject to the propaganda, and now and you're you're sitting there, you know, two months pregnant, and then a group appears with this proposition, get, a, get an abortion at sea. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, there's a good chance you're going to go out there and do it. So we could see uh, across South America, Central America. Uh, if this hysteria continues, I mean, we could see uh, a noticeable drop in the birth rate over the next couple of years. Uh, if a missing generation. A missing generation. You bet. I call this whole thing depopulation by press conference. It has nothing wow. to do with anything. It's just, you know, we've got a story here. We can tell the story. We can sell the story. We can sell the fear, especially to women. And we can do some version of depopulation on that basis alone. Depopulation by press conference. That's pretty powerful stuff. John Rappaport, my guest. No more fake news. Back with more in mere moments. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with John Rappaport. No more fake news. And uh, don't forget his three-part uh, Matrix series. Very powerful uh, stuff. Tremendous insp- uh, information. Uh, it's uh, basically having your own library on your desktop, and uh, you can order that through his website. Again, nomorefakenews.com. Uh, you said something very powerful before the break. Uh, depopulation by press conference. And you and I have talked about depopulation on the radio and on my television program. Um, this, I mean, they don't need a vaccine. They don't need a pill. Uh, this is, seems to be a, a sort of a, a new strategy in their playbook. Just I would say it is. Yeah. Spread a little bit of hysteria. That's right. Target, you know, who do you want to target? You want to target women who are pregnant or women who are considering or definitely going to become pregnant. And you just keep this up long enough, this hysteria, and many, many women will not get pregnant. Many, many women will not get pregnant. Uh, here in Canada, for example, where we have uh, virtually no uh, restrictions on abortion, uh, so you have, you have people returning from uh, vacations in, uh, in South America, the Caribbean, 
Uh, they come back. Uh, now, of course, they have the fear in them. Some of them, uh, a certain percentage, may be pregnant. And they may not qualify for the Zika virus tests. Uh, and so they're thinking now, and this, there's been a, at least one reported case, a woman who said, if I can't get the Zika virus test, and they won't give it to me because I haven't shown symptoms, but I'm not, I can't be sure, uh, if I can't have the test, then I will abort. So even people traveling there and coming back, I mean, this could just spread worldwide. Even if we don't have the Zika virus in Canada, just people simply traveling to those countries. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter. And, you know, the way the playbook works on these uh, phony epidemics is, oh, we've got three cases in Canada now. Boom. Oh, there's a case in Texas. Oh, a case has shown up in the U.K. In fact, six cases. And next week it's ten. And what are they talking about? They're talking about people who take a test, and I won't go into the long details of this, but the kind of test that could register positive for Zika virus, when it means nothing, it's not even really positive for Zika virus, it's reacting on something else that has nothing to do with Zika, as some of these tests do, and two, so what? Because as I said at the top of the show, the Zika virus not only hasn't been connected to microcephaly, but it's been around that we know of since the late 1940s and doesn't cause anything. I mean, it's just a very few mild symptoms and it goes away. So, but they're going to count these as, quote, cases, you see, and then everybody goes, oh, my goodness. So then in all these countries... You've got women who are either in early pregnancy or, con- or intending to become pregnant, and they say, no, uh-uh, I'm either abortion now or I'm not going to get pregnant. So this whole uh, depopulation by press conference indeed can spread around the world. And, and they're saying that there's no uh, a vaccine, there won't be a vaccine available for maybe up to 10 years. Yes, there's contradictory statements about that. Uh, that they're saying that, uh, and then we have a company, for example, in India that says that if they get certain permissions from their own government to rush into studies and so forth, that maybe within 18 months, two years, whatever, they could have a vaccine. Has Have we always known that the Zika virus, and as you've been careful to point out, there's no connection here again between the Zika virus and microcephaly, uh, but have we always known that, that Zika virus is transmitted through, can be transmitted through sex? No, I don't think so. Uh, but nobody's cared. It's sort of like saying, well, should we really do a study on a harmless virus and see whether it can be transmitted through sex? Right, right. You know, why bother? So, you know, even if it could be, my attitude is, sure, transmitted by however you want to transmit it. You know, I mean, uh, could it be transmitted by touch, by breathing, by sneezing, by sex, by casual contact, skin contact? Why not? But so what? A harmless germ, never proven to cause anything, and now the story is manipulated, you see. The thing, 
you know, ashtrays were never known to do any harm, but now somebody suddenly says they're jumping off of tables and hitting people in the head and causing them to go into a coma. So, <laughs> gee, we have all these ashtrays around the world. We better do something about it. Right, right. Ah, ah this is... Um, yeah. I, I guess we've you know we've seen this movie before, right? This is, uh... <laughs> you and I. <laughs> All right, we've we'll take... been to the same theater at least several times, Richard, <laughs> and we've seen the same movie Indeed. over and over again. All right, we'll take one last time out. Come back and uh, finish up with John Rappaport. No more fake news right here on the Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. John Rappaport, medical investigative uh, reporter, health journalist, and No More Fake News is the website, nomorefakenews.com. Uh, and again, you can order his three-part part, uh, series on the Matrix uh, through the website. Uh, I want to get back to uh, these big chemical uh, giants, uh, Monsanto and, and others. Uh, you know, in Europe, of course, they are really clamping down on on um, um, these modified uh, organisms and um, genetically modified organisms. Uh, what is the relationship in in uh, in South America with with Monsanto and and various governments. For example, in the United States, we had a case where the the, the food czar I don't know if the current food czar as he's called in the U.S. was a former director at Monsanto. But is it that kind of cozy relationship down in South America as well? I would say it's become more contentious and disruptive. But that's because there have been popular revolts in these countries that have huge amounts of GMO crops and the pesticides needed to uh, work with the crops. The farmers are in revolt because they've discovered that the crop yields that they were promised through these GMO crops are not uh, coming true, poisoning by pesticide, uh, resistant weeds, huge weeds that are growing that don't respond to the pesticides, etc., etc. And so there's been uh, a lot of political revolt in these countries, and so the situation is more tenuous. It's not what I would any longer call a cozy relationship, no. But but you think that, that uh, part of this hoax that's being perpetrated, part of it there is obviously a, a, a depopulation agenda uh, to whip up this hysteria, get people... Uh, frightened and they decide not to have uh, children or they decide to abort. Uh, the, other, the other aspect of this, though, is to provide a cover story for what's going on with these, these uh, chemicals, agricultural uh, chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides down in South America. Is that, there, is that the idea? Yes, but now it also functions as a cover story for other things. For example... And this is true time and time again with these so-called outbreaks, Ebola, swine flu, this one with Zika, HIV, etc., etc. When you go to areas of endemic poverty in countries, people are dying all the time in many different ways. 
Why are they dying? Generations and generations, severe malnutrition, starvation. Poor sanitation. Lack of sanitation, contaminated water supplies, overcrowding, stolen land, farming land. They can't farm their own land anymore because it's been taken away by major corporations, etc., etc., etc. Vaccine, prior vaccine campaigns, because these people's immune systems are on the edge of collapse anyway, and you give them vaccines with toxic elements in them, push the immune system right over the edge, etc., etc., on and on. Now, <coughs> uh, this has to be covered up, all of this, because this is not a situation that is uncorrectable. Many things can be done to correct this. The water can be cleaned up, sanitation improved, etc. Many things can be done. But the local rulers and their allies, major corporations who move in and take over the land, for example, they don't want this situation to be changed. They want to keep the populations exactly in that state. And they don't want anybody to be investigating this with any seriousness to see how this is being maintained from generation to generation. They need cover stories all the time. And so, oh, a new outbreak of a new virus is causing destruction and so forth. And you say, well, where is that? And then, in most cases, it turns out to be places that, like I've just described. Oh, it's all a virus. We, we have nothing to do with it. We don't know what to do. And so bring in the doctors and the researchers, and hopefully we can handle it, et cetera, et cetera. This is a repeating pattern over and over and over again. Yeah, we oh. we we just keep we we keep biting on the same bait. I mean, they gave it they they give it a different name, but uh, it's the same it's the same uh, strategy, isn't it? And let me just take this one step further in this case of Zika because they're carried by supposedly you know this is virus is carried by mosquitoes who bite people. Okay, so now. There have been test pilot releases of genetically engineered mosquitoes in Brazil and several other places in the world. And this is being touted as the latest technical innovation in order to knock out certain diseases. Right. This is the dengue fever, because supposedly these mosquitoes in, say, South America carry dengue fever. Okay, so now we're looking at, let's see, the company, the main company is Oxitec. Okay, uh, they received several million dollars in funding from Bill and Melinda Gates. Oxitec is actually owned by another corporation called Intrexon, and their main uh, director of, quote, health, Dr. Sam Broder, is the same doctor who once introduced for the treatment of AIDS the most toxic drug ever given for long-term human use called AZT. Uh-huh, I see, okay. And now these genetically engineered mosquitoes are, are looking to be uh, the frontier of new disease intervention and treatment and prevention and so on and so, on and so forth, right? So this Zika story only serves to pump up this solution and I, as I understand it, uh, John, uh, um, the, the one firm that I read about, I'm not sure if it's the one you're talking about, is a U.K.-based biotech firm. And they, right. these genetically modified mosquitoes, what happens is they, they release them, they mate with the, the native mosquitoes, and 
the um, the either they don't they don't produce eggs or the eggs are sterile. So they're almost like the Monsanto Terminator seeds. Yep, that's so, the same idea. So, but it, it, in in the test areas, they have reduced the mosquito population by something like ninety percent. Which, hey, if you don't like mosquitoes, that sounds like a great thing. But I mean, you you could collapse the uh, the. Um, Ecologic. The food chain. The, yeah, the food chain if you did that. Okay, so let me describe that. First of all, as with GMO crops, no significant human health studies were done before the release of these genetically engineered mosquitoes to see, you know, what are the consequences? Hey, do you think we should look at consequences? Oh, that's a good idea. No, we don't have to worry about it. It's fine. So we have no health studies. And, for example, this has been brought up, okay, so you kill all these mosquitoes, now you create a vacuum. So what's going to fill the vacuum in areas of, say, South America where you do this? Well, for example, there's a, species, there's a uh, type of mosquito called the Asian tiger that could fill that gap. Also purported to carry dengue fever, more aggressive, breeds faster. Right? That's not a good sign for sure. And so here they go with this, uh, you know, technological innovation. And they are also looking at the possibility that these uh, engineered insects could in the future carry vaccines. Oh, you know? my. Oh, repeat that because. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that would be the next step, you see. Well, we've got these mosquitoes, and I mean, so why worry about having to do large uh, campaigns to get people to step up? Why not just, you know, allow the vaccines to be delivered by the mosquitoes? That is, it's, it's, it's absolutely evil and brilliant at the same time. Sure. Diabolical, I think, you know. Yeah. That's the idea, because... Now, if you are, say, in Trexon or Oxitec, same thing, and you own the patent on these mosquitoes, which you do, they're yours. You own them. Now you can begin to implant anything you want to in them. And who knows what already has been implanted. I mean, I certainly can't say for sure, nor could any outsider say. But in the future... Oh, yeah, we could deliver medical uh, drugs, we could deliver vaccines, we could deliver anything we want to. Is that is that a feasible right now with the technology to do that, or is that something you're projecting off into the future? Any way of knowing? I would say that certain things are feasible right now. Because all you would have to do, for example, instead of creating genetically engineered male mosquitoes create females who do the biting and you've got a delivery system now whether you could deliver a vaccine right now may be a little uncertain you certainly could deliver a drug but I think that there are certain types of vaccines that you could already deliver the so-called DNA vaccines which are um, being not only researched, but, you know, tested, in which you've got a vaccine that does not contain the germ that you're supposedly vaccinating against, but it has a DNA pattern of that germ or some part of that germ. 
So you're delivering a DNA sequence, basically. And this is one, you know, one of the frontiers of vaccine research. I think you could probably figure out a way to put that uh, sequence into a mosquito and have it delivered. Sure, why not? That may be the scariest thing I've ever heard from you, John. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty ominous, especially, you see, because, again, no controls. No controls on this. Because the history of GMO crops, if you look at it, which is, you know, the first big development, 19, I'm going to say 96 in America is when they were first approved. The FDA said, well, it's the corporation's responsibility to determine that this uh, innovation is safe. And Monsanto and the other corporations said, well, the FDA says it's okay. That's what happened. Nothing else happened. There were no health studies, no long-term anything. All the protests that, this, that these uh, GMO crops were not equivalent to ordinary natural crops were ignored. So in the case of the mosquitoes, yeah, it's a tougher sell, but, you know, one step at a time, and all of a sudden you've got agencies saying, ah, all right, go ahead. And not only that, see, but once you release them, and I'm now talking about a different kind of genetic engineering at a different level, if they can mate, if they can produce offspring and so on and so forth, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. How are you going to recall them? Even in a test run where you release, say, 20,000 and in a small area, what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, you don't want us to do that anymore? Okay. You know, yeah, too late. There's no stopping it. And this is assuming that they tell us anyway, of any, exactly. of any of this. Exactly. Oh, boy, you've given us a lot to think about, uh, John Raffaport, and you always do. Uh, gosh. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep well tonight, I'll tell you that. But um, I guess forewarned, forearmed. Exactly. John, thank you as always. Okay, Richard, it's great to be here with you every single time. My pleasure. John Rappaport, nomorefakenews.com. You really need to get up there and check out that website, nomorefakenews.com. And my website, of course, strangeplanet.com. .ca, strangeplanet.ca. Don't forget to get to the uh, live events page there and uh, order your tickets for the Bilderbergs event coming Sunday, April the 17th, University of Toronto, with special guest Daniel Estulin, who will be premiering his new documentary, Bilderberg, the movie. Again, strangeplanet.ca, live events page, order your tickets. Say hello on Twitter. As always, follow the truth.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi cab, uh, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio here in Toronto, and our affiliates north and south of the 49th, uh, those catching the live stream on YouTube, uh, the podcast, of course, iTunes, TuneIn.com, Stitcher Radio, TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who are taking the show with you on your smartphones and tablets uh, through the Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both free downloads. However and wherever you're listening, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, is standing by on the line from her home in Connecticut uh, to discuss portals. Um, is the veil between this dimension and whatever lies on the other side thinning? Uh, are there underlying physical reasons why certain locations, such as uh, the Skinwalkers Ranch or the Hudson Valley or West Virginia, why they seem to experience an abundance of paranormal activity? Uh, and not just hauntings or, or sightings of Bigfoot or Uf, uh, UFO activity, uh, but the whole nine yards, the whole enchilada, all at once. Uh, Rosemary says yes, and uh, she's studied everything from soil types to the existence of subterranean rivers and how uh, they may all be connected to paranormal activity. Uh, And then there's the argument that it's possible holes are being torn in that same veil that separates this world from the next, and and this is causing a significant uptick in all kinds of, of paranormal activity in certain locations. And she says it's likely to intensify. Uh, so much so that our present reality may be in transition uh, and will increasingly blend with whatever is on the other side, so much that uh, we won't recognize our world in the not-so-distant future. Uh, before that, as always, let me, let me remind you to get on up to the landing page, strangeplanet.ca. Poke around. Uh, there's a, a lot to explore there. The website for this program is um, found on the radio in the radio section. Uh, please take a moment to register. It's fast and it's easy and free. And it gives you access to the past show archive, the book club, uh, and much more. Uh, there's also a TV section where you can learn more about my television program, The Conspiracy Show, season four, of course, coming soon across Canada on Vision TV. Uh, incidentally, seasons one through three are now available in the U.S. on Amazon and Hulu. All right. Uh, Oh, the Bilderbergs, my special live event coming to the U of T, featuring Pulitzer Prize nominee Daniel Estulin, best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs. 
he'll be presenting the Canadian theatrical premiere of his new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie, uh, plus a 90-minute lecture. Uh, tickets on sale now through the live events page at strangeplanet.ca and through Conspiracy Culture Bookstore, 1344 Bloor Street West, uh, in-store or by phone, 416-916-1696, 416-916-1696, and of course through the website conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderberg, Sunday, April 17th, U of T. All right then, let's talk portals. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical paranormal fields with more than 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work for focuses on interdimensional entity, contact experiences, problem-haunting, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual uh, sorry spiritual uh, growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, and investigation of unusual paranormal activity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome back to the Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, the year is getting off to a very fast start for me. I'm uh, busy on many fronts. I've got uh, vampires, ghosts, hauntings, demonic cases, ET research, angels. Uh, It's just everything is just all over the place. But I love it this way, as you know, because uh, I like delving into all these different areas. So um, it's going to be an exciting year. Uh, we should mention the website, of course, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Um, I want to talk to you. I know you've written about this extensively. I, I think you wrote a, a book dedicated to portals in the Hudson Valley. Uh, was it, a, it was an entire book, was it, or was it a series of articles? Well, I've done uh, pieces on it yet. Okay. I had planned a whole book, but uh, I haven't actually done the whole book yet, but I've done pieces of it in books, and I've done some articles on it, too. I've looked at uh, portals actually all over. Uh, whenever I do my field research, we've got an intense number of them uh, very near where I live here in Connecticut. The Hudson Valley has been active for some time. And throughout my career, Richard, one of the first things I noticed when I started investigating hauntings was that there were similarities uh, from case to case in characteristics of the land. And it got me really intrigued about uh, energy of the landscape and what that has to do with how active an area is and also the kind of activity that takes place on the land. And uh, even though um, it's... Uh, can't be predicted with any, um, you know, these things are very hard to pin down in a a definitive way, so some things can't be predicted 100% of the time, but nonetheless, there are characteristics that are fairly predictable. For example, if someone describes to me uh, what's going on in uh, in their home, for example, or in their area, I can fit it into patterns that I have been documented, uh, documenting for several decades now. So it, just to summarize, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, you're drawing a, uh, a correlation or causation, perhaps, between uh, paranormal activity in a, in a region. It could be UFO activity. It could be, uh, could be related to 
uh, cryptozoology like Sasquatch uh, sightings, uh, ghost activity, shadow uh, people activity, jinn. That uh, may be caused by or certainly related to the region's geography, its uh, topography, uh, the type of minerals even in the soil. Am, am, I on to, am I on the right track here? Absolutely. And uh, yes, it's across the board. It doesn't matter what kind of unusual or paranormal phenomena are occurring. And usually in these hot zone areas, these portal areas, there's um, multiple activities. There's not just one kind, like just a UFO corridor or just a Bigfoot area, you know, that sort of thing. We usually find a mix of all kinds of things going on. And uh, there are these certain characteristics to the landscape. In some cases, I think they're contributing factors, and in some cases, I think they are predominant factors. So um, there's, there's like um, a mix, uh, a combustion mix, so to speak, uh, of ingredients. And if you get the right combination in the right place, uh, you can have very active areas. And these, uh, I call these areas portals. Uh, John Keel called them window areas. Uh, and uh, some people call them thin boundary areas. But they're places on the planet where people are likely to experience some sort of extraordinary activity that can range from the negative to the positive. Some places are very positive, like sacred sites. Uh, some places are negative, where uh, people have had a great deal of difficulty with unpleasant activity and homes that are built on those locations. And uh, a lot of places really fall in, in between with uh, a mix of everything. And uh, I think that these areas really do need to be studied more uh, to enable us to, to get a better picture of why things happen, why people have the experiences they do, and uh, if there's any way that we can determine how much of it is contributed by the landscape versus how much is contributed by human trigger factors. And uh, there we find a, a range in uh, uh, characteristics as well, that, that some people seem to have the ability to trigger activity wherever they go, and some people dampen the activity wherever they go. So how much does human consciousness play into this picture as well? So uh, areas that are experiencing high volume in paranormal activity, uh, the, uh, logically then we assume that the portal or the, the veil between this world and, uh, or this dimension, I guess, and the, the next or another dimension or other dimensions is, is thinner. Is that the idea? Well, that would be one way of describing it, or something that opens up these boundaries, like sort of rips a hole in it and enables uh, a blending of reality so that we experience the extraordinary. Uh, and some of these areas seem to be very open all or most of the time. And, uh, you know, we just mentioned the Hudson Valley. I live very close to uh, the Hudson River, uh, and the Hudson River Valley has had quite a long history of, for example, UFO activity. We had the big flap in the 1980s with the black triangles. But um, the UFO activity remains fairly steady. Nothing is uh, of the intensity of, of the, uh, the mid-1980s wave. But people are very likely to encounter strange phenomena um, up and down that, that river valley, and that includes a Bigfoot, it includes mysterious creatures, 
and heavily haunted areas where people who live uh, within uh, a certain geographic range of that valley uh, are likely to experience all kinds of crazy haunting activities in their homes. And the Mothman uh, flap is another example, I think, of this portal that opens up uh, in, in a kind of explosive way, and dramatic things happen. For 13 months, uh, there, there were, were massive UFO sightings, craft, encounters with beings. Mothman was encountered uh, a good number of times, and then it seemed to close up. Um, but the area has had a history of a lot of hauntings and sightings of mysterious beings uh, going back much, much earlier than Mothman, and it continues today. So what are these characteristics that make these portals, and what causes them to kind of explode open for a while exactly. and then close a, l- a little bit tighter? Exactly. Well, what is it about the Hudson Valley? Let's start with uh, uh, what, what are the common denominators uh, I mean, along the Hudson Valley um, that, that may contribute to this portal opening and closing or being thinner along this region? Uh, it, what are some of the, the characteristics that you think you found? Well, some of the ones that I've found that relate to these portal areas in general, we can certainly find them in places in the Hudson Valley, and the Catskills um, are, uh, are are part part of that active area as well. So there's content of the soil, like is there um, a high content of quartz material or certain kinds of metals like um, iron uh, or magnetite that would have magnetic fields to them that might generate uh, an energy in the earth. Um, Certain remote mountainous regions uh, have uh, this intensity of activity, underground water streams, and also uh, large bodies of running water. And of course, the Hudson River itself provides that uh, sort of constant flow of uh, energy and ionized air and 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 things like that. Uh, and um, and does does the Hudson Valley have a, a lot of quartz and iron in its soil? Do we know? Uh, it does in pockets, and yeah. there's also uh, pockets of radon activity. Oh, and radon I've, is not good. <laughs> I've wondered about the the impact of radon as well. It seems that. Uh, things that are in the soil that generate some sort of energy contribute to these these portal areas. And then there are areas of magnetic anomalies, and um, they can be either uh, markedly inten- uh, um, negative or markedly positive uh, that seem to be factors as well. Negative magnetic anomalies seem to be associated with uh, some of the most uh, active portal areas. And so I've, I've looked at these areas uh, in relation to, uh, like, geological survey maps uh, that, that map out these magnetic anomalies, and they do correspond with areas that uh, are known for their, their haunting phenomena. This is amazing. I, I don't know of anyone else that, that is doing this kind of analysis, uh, Rosemary. Kudos to you. We'll take a quick time out and uh, continue to discuss portals and much more with our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal researcher, investigator. Her website is visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com, discussing portals. Uh, I mentioned just before the break, this seems to me uh, to be a very unique field of research. The, the idea that you are finding or matching sort of characteristics, things like uh, the, the elements in the soil, minerals in the soil, uh, etc., to paranormal activity. Uh, you gave the, the example of, um, of quartz and iron in the soil. Seems to be a link to paranormal, uh, pockets of paranormal activity. Anyone else doing this kind of research? Because this, to me, is, uh, no pun intended, but groundbreaking. Well, I, I believe that I was one of the early researchers uh, to start looking into this. There are, there are other investigators who have looked at land anomalies, and uh, I, I do believe that paranormal investigators, even uh, ufologists who look for hot zones, uh, the Bigfoot researchers, really do need to take these things into account. Uh, and... Um, you know, West Virginia has some of those anomalies as well. and um, Hence the Mothman. Uh, yes, around, around the Mothman sighting. And there's an awful lot of activity in West Virginia in general. I've often joked that the whole state is a portal. It just <laughs> seems to be amazing, the things that go on there. But it has a lot of these characteristics as well. And also um, mining tunnels. Well, of course, people mine, uh, human beings mine where there's ore. Uh, of some sort. There are either coal mines, iron mines, copper mines, etc. And uh, when those mining tunnels are made, uh, I believe that that shifts the energy in the earth uh, that also disturbs spirit activity or uh, agitates it. And uh, this correlates with folklore going back centuries where uh, people believe that uh, underground channels like streams that bubbled up to the surface or caves that opened uh, up into the surface were conduits for the spirit world. And um, we find a lot of mining lore corresponding uh, with that, too, that uh, miners believed that they encountered spirits when they went deep into the earth. And so some of these areas that have been heavily mined and those mine tunnels are now abandoned, um, are they still conduits for spirit activity or do they facilitate spirit activity in some way? I, I believe that they do. That's interesting. I just, I just returned from uh, Death Valley. I was working on an ep- uh, episode for a, 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 a cable TV show. On the, uh, it was a travel channel. Um, and... In uh, Death Valley, I don't know if you find uh, any of these sort of same characteristics in terms of soil, but uh, lots of mining, of course, went on out there, gold mining, silver mining, uranium mining. Uh, And there is a place called Devil's Hole uh, that I believe uh, uh, Charlie Manson was fascinated with Devil's Hole, and he would send his disciples out there, and I think a few of them probably disappeared, looking for... I guess, this portal to another dimension and whether they thought that they could contact some evil entity to help them, you know, do their bidding, I'm not sure. But uh, is Death Death Valley, uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, a major portal? 
Uh, well, it certainly is an active area, and I've found uh, other hot zones in the southwest as well, and some of them are associated with mining. For example, the Superstition Mountains uh, in Arizona, and uh, last year I was doing some research out in Jerome, uh, which is uh, an old mining town. There isn't any... Um, the mines were pretty well uh, stripped the earth. Um, I think the last mine closed um, in mid-century. Uh, but the area is still heavily haunted, and uh, I think because the energy of the landscape was uh, so radically altered that um, it it enabled uh, a bleed-through of, of dimensions that uh, are still... Uh, you know, the phenomena are still present uh, today. And um, the deserts also have their own peculiar uh, characteristics of, um, of landscape that uh, contribute to some kinds of hauntings. And there are differences in types of hauntings uh, from area to area. Um, there are, out in the southwest, um, there are, are po- very powerful land spirits that I think are encountered more frequently than, uh, for example, out here in the east. And I'm not sure why that is, uh, other than the fact that there are huge tracts of, of unoccupied land in the southwest relative to more densely populated areas here that uh, probably altered uh, energy uh, in well, uh, I have a theory very if I, dramatic ways. I have a theory uh, regarding the southwest, if I might offer. Oh, please. Uh, of course, in the late, well, actually starting in about 1951 um, and right on into, I think, the early 60s, we had the Nevada Approving Grounds. We had a lot of nuclear testing going on, uh, blasts. Uh, there was something called Operation Plumb Bob in uh, 1957, 29 atomic blasts. Of course, they didn't tell anybody living downwind about the dangers. They didn't even advise them to go indoors. Uh, but all of these nuclear blasts going off, never mind the radiation, is it possible uh, that the, you know, they, these blasts tore a, a hole in this, this fabric, this veil that separates uh, this dimension from the next? Well, I'm glad you reminded me of the nuclear testing out there because I, I do believe that um, the atom bomb has ripped all kinds of uh, holes in interdimensional boundaries. And certainly the vibrations that, uh, that the Earth would be subjected to would alter uh, energy configurations in, in the very ground and soil. And uh, as a corollary to that, uh, recently out here in the East, we've had a lot of fracking for gas as a way, a way of getting uh, you know, difficult to obtain gas out of the shale. And a lot of that's gone on in West Virginia, and um, mountains have been practically taken apart. All kinds of um, boring has gone into the earth, and tremendous vibrational activity to uh, to take this gas out of the earth. And it's been no surprise to me to see a rise in reports of haunting activity and mysterious creature activity in, in areas where a lot of this fracking has gone on. So what are we doing to the planet that, um, you know, we're shaking up interdimensional boundaries here and I think uh, wreaking far more havoc than we realize? Uh, I mean, we've known about, 
UFOs since, uh, you know, before biblical times and accounts of, of what were probably UFOs in the Bible, Ezekiel's wheel and so forth. But ever since Kenneth Arnold in 19... 19- 47, it, it seems like things have ramped up significantly, and, and um, I'm wondering if that's coincidental or if it's related to the, the you know, the atomic blasts at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all the testing that went on uh, prior to that. There are a number of contributing factors, and, and certainly uh, all that nuclear activity uh, was a big change. And um, then in addition, we have um, increasing numbers of people having experiences, which adds to a collective energy, even a thought form energy, that uh, I believe influences the tendency to have even more experiences. And so we have global media uh, that's uniting consciousness, uh, and uh, more people are talking about their experiences, uh, even looking for experiences. We are also, uh, due to population explosion, pushing into remote areas that uh, I think were the province of, of um, the spirit world. And uh, we're now taking over energetically these places and causing a disruption in um, a literally a balance of, of power, if not occupation. So we have all of these things uh, contributing to a snowball effect. And uh, this is causing a lot of chaos and tumult. Um, my feeling is, and I have been talking about this for several years now, what's emerging is, uh, I call it both the interdimensional Earth and transreality Earth, uh, where uh, our our paraphysical experiences are becoming uh, increasingly commonplace. And at some point, I think we will have a significant shift in reality so that the reality that we're familiar with now isn't going to exist anymore. It's going to incorporate more of these paraphysical experiences with these alternate realities that are right next to ours. Uh, So are you suggesting that I'm not sure what percentage of the population uh, is considered to be a psychic or is more likely to have a paranormal experience because there seems to be some um, biological um, contributing factor there, to be, you know, separating those that have paranormal experiences and those that do not, or maybe it's neuro- neurological. Are you suggesting then that there's going to be a ramping up of the number of people, percentage-wise, that will have paranormal experiences, that will see UFOs that previously may have not? Uh, I believe that that is taking place right now. And some people do seem to be more attuned to these realities. Uh, And, for example, let's take the UFO field where we have people reporting sightings. They see craft in the sky. Uh, or they have an encounter with uh, with alien beings, and other people don't see craft in the sky. They don't have these encounters, and so they are likely to view the experiencers as people who are on the fringe. It's their fantasy. There's something abnormal or wrong with them, uh, when in fact they're they're just tuned differently than um, maybe the collective, the general collective of, of um, society. And that's what's shifting, hmm. uh, that more people are getting this attunement. 
And um, the data now that is coming out on experiencers, and I've been participating in um, uh, the studies for that, that is, is showing that um, more people than, than we suspect have extraordinary experiences as part of their ordinary reality, and they've had them throughout their lives. So the experiencer is not the unusual person, not the abnormal person or the fringe person. The experiencer is now becoming the ordinary citizen. Interesting. Uh, When I was out in in Death Valley, I sat on the hood of my uh, rented Hyundai Accent looking up in the night sky, which was absolutely spectacular. The desert uh, night sky is just out of this world. Uh, You know, hoping, because I have not... Here I am doing a, a program, uh, The Conspiracy Show, talking about the paranormal, talking about UFOs, and I have never seen an unidentified flying object. And so there I was. I was out there for about a half an hour. Just I had some time looking up in the night sky, hoping, praying that uh, I'd see something so that I, you know, at least I'd have some street cred. <laughs> but maybe I just have to wait a little bit longer because, you see, as you say, this is going to become more and more common. Uh, I believe it is, and... Uh, I think that the speed at which these changes are taking place is increasing as well. Uh, it's a snowball effect, and um, it's going, going to come faster and faster. But, you know, over the course of my paranormal investigation career, I've had a, a lot of certain kinds of experiences and very few of other kinds of experiences. For example, I've never seen Bigfoot. I have never seen a mysterious creature. Uh, I've had lots of ghost experiences, angels, demonic, jinn, fairies. Um, I have seen uh, unknown lights and or craft on three occasions. Uh, and yet I know people who have had uh, exactly the opposite. They've had more experiences on the UFO end of things and very few on the other end of things. All right, when we come back, Rosemary, we're going to talk about uh, your research uh, in conjunction with the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. This is a huge uh, global survey that you've been part of, and we'll discuss that when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. This has been an exclusive podcast of Dave's Corner Garage. Heard every Saturday morning from 10 to 11 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our resident paranormal investigator. The website is visionaryliving.com. And um, I want to talk about this, uh, this huge global survey uh, that you've been assisting with. This is called the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. You're on the board. Tell us about it. I am on the board of directors and also on the research committee. Uh, the man who directs it, Ray Hernandez, is the driving force and invited me to come aboard uh, last year. And the organization is, uh, has undertaken... Uh, the largest ever global survey of experiencers. Previous surveys have involved uh, several dozen people, maybe a hundred or so people, and this is involving over 2,000 people. So that's um, the largest 
um, sample of experiencers to date. And it's not just ET experiencers we've looked at. We're looking, uh, we're asking people about their out-of-body experiences, near death, encounters with ghosts, angels, uh, unknown entities, fairies, afterlife communications. Uh, we want to look at the whole picture because everything is interconnected. And this is a qualitative study as well as quantitative. We're not just piling up statistics. Uh, we're trying to to put things into a perspective in terms of what it means to the individual and what it means for humanity as a whole. So we're about halfway through a four-part uh, survey, and we have just released publicly uh, the preliminary results from Phase 1 and Phase 2. And uh, I found the, the results very, very interesting. And what we're going to, we're going to be publishing uh, this in report form. Uh, there may be a book. We're working on a documentary. Uh, we're coordinating with other organizations uh, that are doing similar research. So this is a, a very big undertaking. And um, this is what I was alluding to a little earlier about the new experiencer being the ordinary person, not the, uh, not the unusual person. That um, Now, most of our respondents are from the United States, followed by England and then Europe. We have some in South America, but they are scattered all over the globe. Uh, most of the, um, the experiencers re reporting have been women. And most fall into a uh, like about a 35 to 64 um, age uh, age group, and most of them report positive experiences. Now the media has given us a lot of negative experiences, and of course we know negative plays very mm. well in the media. There there are abductions, there are unpleasant abductions, but overall most people report positive experiences with what we're calling uh, non-human intelligent beings. And uh, some of the beings are unknown. Some, some of them are identified as ETs by people. Mo most of the contact experiences with these beings are humanoid, not the greys. The greys are second. Uh, and um, people say that they have been treated as an equal or with respect. They, it's been an expansive experience. Um, we've looked at a special category of experiences, what we call in a matrix reality, where people feel transported to some sort of mystical realm or an alternate reality where they have very mind-expanding experiences, that is what we would call downloads and cosmic consciousness um, uh, along with interaction with, with these beings. So the, the picture of our encounters is much different than what we have had a concentration of in the media in the past with the unpleasant abductions and, you know, marauding aliens and ugly monstrous things. Um, people are saying it's, it's really quite different than that. And, and how, do, how do people participate in this survey? Is it online? Are they telephone surveys? How, how is it done? The uh, first part of the, phase one and phase two were done online. And so uh, we advertised a lot, sent out emails, co uh, contacted many groups, so it was voluntary, it's self-reporting, uh, that people had to go online and uh, take, um, take the survey. Now, we've asked hundreds of questions, not just a few dozen, but hundreds of questions. 
And uh, the survey, of course, was put together by um, statistical experts uh, to ask uh, questions the right way, you know, so that we can get correlation of, of certain kinds of answers. Right. That's important because that was one of the criticisms of the Roper poll back, I guess, about 20 years ago. Uh, that was commissioned, I believe, by Dr. David Jacobs and I think Bud Hopkins. I'm not sure if John Mack was part of that, um, which was uh, was supposed to establish sort of what percentage of respondents may have been alien uh, abductees, and the results were quite alarming. I think it was around, was it 3% or 4%, which is quite high. But the criticisms, of course, were there, that uh, I guess the questions were a little bit leading. Uh, Rosemary, we we will take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue to uh, discuss uh, portals and this uh, fascinating uh, global survey that you've uh, been part of um, called Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator. And again, the website is visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. And be sure to check out the uh, the store section uh, on the website. Uh, She's written over 60 books, nine major encyclopedias. Uh, It's just um, a virtual library right there at your fingertips. Uh, So I I mentioned the Roper poll uh, before the break, Rosemary, was... As a, as a board member for this foundation, I mean, were you, were you sort of cognizant of the criticisms that had come down regarding the way that survey was conducted? Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, there, were, there have been shortcomings in a lot of surveys, and, uh, I'm, you know, I, I certainly don't mean to fault any of the earlier surveys. I think um, researchers have conducted them as best as they can with, with resources available, uh, but uh, yes, there are um, a lot of shortcomings in terms of the size of the data pool and the numbers, uh, number of questions asked. So in phase one and two, um, the people who participated in phase one were invited to uh, participate in phase two. Uh, these were additional questions. Now, these are all multiple choice. And um, they're fairly open-ended in terms of um, you know, the range of experiences that we, we asked about. And um, the, that part of the survey is now closed. And so we're uh, looking at phase three, where we are asking that same data pool to answer open-ended questions. That is, there are some multiple choices, but then there's an opportunity for the respondents to describe in their own words, to elaborate with detail. And phase four, then, will involve selecting um, individuals 
uh, to ask them if they would be willing to do in-person interviews. And uh, we're hoping to actually be able to, uh, to get some on videotape that we can then use as, as part of the educational program. Uh, confidentiality has been guaranteed. Uh, even in uh, re- reviewing the results, I have uh, no information as to specific individuals, uh, their names or locations. And so in the final phase, it's only going to be those individuals who, who really want to come forward and be vocal about their experiences and be public about it that uh, we will be able to. Uh, now, some of the people will agree, I think, to be interviewed in person, but maybe not have their interviews disclosed. And then we're hoping that that's, um, some will. And um, in association with that, not... Uh, not necessarily a, a part of the formal survey, but uh, I am working with Ray on some cases in Florida where uh, families have had uh, um, collective experiences, and uh, we're looking at putting this together in in a book to um, to demonstrate this. Uh, what I'm calling the I'm calling it the new experiencer and. Um, not, not that these are like brand new experiences, but this is a new picture of the experiencer that really hasn't been revealed before. We focused on aspects of experiences, and there's been a lot of attention on the negative end of things, but no one's really looked at uh, the broad scope of the more positive end. We've, we've had near-death experience studies, you know, um, it was about 20, 20 or so years ago, Ken Ring did the comparison between NDEers and ET experiencers, abductees, uh, to look for common traits in their personalities and the kinds of experiences they were having. Um, But no one's really taken on board the whole whole spectrum. Now, the website for this is experiencer.org, and um, there's... Um, some information up about it. Uh, we're developing a full website, uh, and it, uh, the full website hasn't been launched yet. And I, I would just like to mention that Edgar Mitchell was involved in um, the genesis of this uh, organization and lent his name to the foundation as, as well. And um, it it was with great sorrow, of course, that um, yes, we just lost you know, him. We, he passed a, a few days ago. Uh, he, he'd been ill for some time, but he really did contribute right up to the end, you know, contributed as much as he could. Uh, and again, this is, uh, this is the largest ever. This is a global survey, and it covers um, all sorts of extraordinary experiences, including, as you say, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, ghosts, angels, contact with the dead, past life recall, other mystical experiences, and, of course, uh, um, uh, alien uh, contact. Um, What was the most surprising finding? I mean, you mentioned that that, um, the majority of the experiences were positive, but what were were some of the other surprising findings? Uh, Well... That in itself was real surprising to me was was the um, the number of positive experiences and also um, i'm I'm sure you recall in in the abduction field that 
um, there has been um, examination of blood types, you know, and there uh, was all this attention uh, about the uh, negative RH factor, you know, that supposedly right. a lot of abductees had certain blood types. And uh, most of the people answering the survey say their blood is not RH negative. So um, I think we're going to have to reexamine a, a lot of foregone conclusions or what we think we know about experiencers in light, light of the new data coming out. Um, also, a fair number of experiencers um, say that their uh, no, experiences are in like this, mate, we're calling it the matrix reality, where they're transported to what seems to be uh, another state of consciousness uh, as a result of having contact with uh, some intelligent being. And uh, that this has altered their views of the afterlife. They think their experiences are wrapped up in some sort of revelation or understanding about the nature of the afterlife, uh, changes their beliefs about whether or not there's reincarnation. Uh, and um, here again, the whole slant uh, of the study indicates a positive uh, impact of these experiences so the media and some of these other studies have focused on fear-based results where the, we've, we've looked at negative experiences, and uh, that's a major shift. Right. But now, the, the, now, the negative experiences do happen, and, right. and people do report negative encounters and abductions. Most people say that they have uh, not been abducted against their will. Most people say that um, if... Uh, if they had an opportunity to stop their experiences, would they? They say no, they would not. That's interesting. Uh, now, but the overall um, in the survey, it's it's positive, uh, but you're also including in that mix uh, things like NDEs and OBEs and past life recalls, which tend to be fairly positive when people have a near-death experience, although at, initially it's very disturbing. You know, they talk about the unconditional love and the light and so forth. So um, is, is it possible that it's the, the, the uh, overall numbers are positive because you're, you're including these experiences, these mystical, paranormal-type experiences that tend to be positive anyway? Uh, yes, they do. And here's, here's my personal take on this, uh, is that these other experiences seem to be wrapped up in complex uh, scenarios of all kinds of experiences that uh, people who've reported contact with uh, non-human intelligent beings have also had uh, like OBEs or a near-death experience or a mystical experience. Hmm. And so there are these, um, it, it's, I don't think that we can isolate experiencers in terms of types um, that they seem to be having uh, different kinds of experiences and that's been my feeling all along. However, um, I can't say exactly off the top of my head, I can't say exactly how many questions are related specifically to ETs and craft 
um, things that we would associate with the ET encounter. But uh, a lot of them are. And like, have you observed an intelligently controlled craft? Have you been aboard a craft? Uh, Have uh, you uh, understood its operation? Um, Have you... um, you know, experienced ETs, have you been abducted, have you experienced missing time? Um, Most of the people who have responded to the survey say they have experienced missing time uh, in relation to uh, certain kinds of ET experiences. Uh, There's also the phenomenon of expanded time, and uh, that seems to be in uh, a a minority. Hmm. Uh, Many people, I don't know what the percentage is, but many people uh, only remember, uh, for example, an abduction experience uh, after regression, uh, after a regression, uh, regression therapy. Uh, do your respondents indicate whether or not, in the survey, whether or not they've undergone a regression in order to remember any of these events, positive or negative? Yes, and in fact, we had quite a bit of discussion as to whether or not we would include uh, regression experiences because there is a lot of criticism over how regressions are conducted. They do have to be conducted very carefully so uh, as um, someone is not led by questioning. And we have asked the respondents to identify the, the nature of their experience. Was it conscious? Was it in a lucid dream? Was it in an astral projection? Um, was it a regression? Uh, so that we can break that down uh, by, uh, you know, another kind of type of experience. And the, the, um, the survey population, the sample, in other words, uh, again, we're talking about how many respondents, roughly 2,000? Um, it's about 2,700 uh, respondents, and um, here again, most of them are from the United States. Okay, and, uh, and that's really where the most publicity for for the survey uh, went on, followed by right. the UK, and um, then it starts to break down in different European countries, South America, uh, Asia. Uh, most of them are female. Um, that's uh, let's see, fifty six, a little over fifty six percent are female. And again, these are, you know, this is self-reporting. It's people right. who found out about the study who voluntarily took it. Um, the two biggest age groups are uh, 45 to 54 and 55 to 64. Um, so, uh, you know, that's middle age. And now people are reporting on their, might be reporting on their experiences from childhood or earlier in life. Uh, but that's the age of the respondent, uh, the respondents. Well, it's fascinating, and um, I look forward to uh, to hearing more about uh, phase four. Uh, perhaps there's a a book or a documentary uh, in the works. And again, the website is is it experiencers dot org. It's experiencer single uh, experiencer dot org. All right, Rosemary, always a delight. Uh, your website again, visionaryliving dot com. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Richard. I'll look forward to speaking with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, that's it for us. My thanks to uh, Ian and Jamie and Albert. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.